I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa D. Simone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on taxes and the environment. In today's episode, we discuss how governments are addressing greenhouse gas emissions through policies such as carbon pricing and discuss some recent tax research on the effectiveness of these policies. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. Um, I'm sorry, what? I said, hello, Lisa. Okay, what are you doing? Well, you see, we've been in London for now. Is this our sixth day here? Oh my God. Yes. Yes. I I seem to have picked up the accent. I don't don't think that's true. Jolly good. (laughs) Please stop. Really? Oh my God. Um, all right. Yes. So, um, we have been here in London for six days, six days. And that has made my co-host go crazy. Evidently. (laughs) She now thinks she's British. Uh, I'll stop, I guess. Sorry. Nathan Goldman requested that we do the entire episode in British accents. Well, then I guess you'd better keep going. I I don't, I want people to actually listen to what we have to say because we have some interesting stuff to talk about today. We do. Yes. So we've been here in London, as we said, for um, the week, basically attending two different conferences. And we're going to talk about one of them today because it was our favorite ATAX conference. Absolutely. LBS Stanford Global Tax Conference. And that was organized by Becky Lester at Stanford and Marcel Olbert at LBS. And the conference was awesome. It was a mix of accountants, people from finance, a bunch of economists. I think they said there was a lawyer in the room. Also practitioners. Yes. Um, So it was a really good mix of people from a wide variety of disciplines who all are interested in studying and understanding the effects of different tax policies. Mm -hmm. It was. And that was sort of the highlight of the conference or the objective of the conference was to start getting people in different disciplines talking about Um, similar things. So it was a diverse set of researchers, which was a positive. We talked a lot about many interesting topics, um, one of which is taxes in the environment, which we'll get to in a little bit. And speaking of the environment, I have to say that the weather here was lovely. Perhaps the, I mean, not to disparage anything else, but the weather was the highlight of the week. I mean, yes, it's phenomenal. Sunny, warm, blue skies, no rain. Yeah, it is. I mean, if London were like this all the time, everybody would live here. It was really great. So on to some of the topics at the conference, there was actually a decent amount of discussion at the conference about the intersection of ESG and taxes. And so that's what we've decided that we're going to focus this podcast episode on today. And when we say ESG, we mean things that are related to the environment, to society and to government or governance over firms. Absolutely. So fortunately for us, I think we're going to talk about the part of that acronym that's the easiest for people to understand, which is the E, which the environment part of it. Okay. So our two goals for today are to first talk a little bit about carbon pricing. So that's, it's very, very exciting. Okay. And then uh, we'll get into talking about some of the empirical research that we saw at the conference on both the effectiveness of carbon taxes and maybe not surprisingly, some things that companies might try to do to avoid these taxes. Shocking. Because we know that companies like to avoid the taxes. In this case, we're going to go one step further and then talk about some stuff that the governments can do to try to prevent the companies from avoiding the taxes. So one of the speakers was a practitioner from EY named Alinka Turnsek. She's their sustainability leader for the European market. She kicked off the conference with a high-level discussion of various approaches governments can take to combat greenhouse gases, and in particular spoke at great lengths about carbon pricing. So let's 
Let's talk about what carbon pricing is. So basically it's a mechanism that puts a price on carbon emissions. And the point of that is to mitigate the negative externalities that are created by greenhouse gas emissions. I think of an externality as when some individual, some firm, some party is engaging in a behavior to achieve a goal. And in doing that, they impose a cost, something negative on people outside of their little of what was organization. intended. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So that's a negative externality. There, there is such a thing as positive externalities, but it's something outside a byproduct, byproduct. of- what's going on that can have impacts on other parties and it's not priced into the transaction. Okay, perfect. So in this case, we've got a company manufacturing something probably. Yes. They're okay. doing that to earn a profit. Yes. They're going to charge consumers a price for that. Good. Exactly. And all of the cost of manufacturing that product, the direct costs mm -hmm. to the company are going to be baked into that price. In this situation, the company is also polluting okay. in that production process. So they are emitting some sort of greenhouse gas and that is imposing a negative externality on society in the form of pollution and damage to the environment. Yeah, hurts the environment, hurts our health. And the problem with that is that unless the government steps in, there's no cost to the company of polluting. And so it's not baked into their cost of producing the product. It's not baked into the price that the consumer pays for the product. It's just, it's imposing a cost on society without recouping that cost in any way. And so basically, I guess the way you could look at this is we can't necessarily rely on companies to care about the environment on their own. I'm shocked by that. And to take steps to clean up their production processes on their own. So this carbon pricing is a mechanism by which the government, like you said, is trying to intervene to make the company care about the cleanliness or the dirtiness of their production process by imposing a cost on it. Perfect. Okay. So government imposes a price on this pollution, which prior to this point had been free. Mm -hmm. And in response, there are three things that can happen. The company can absorb the cost. They just reduce their profit. Which a for-profit business is probably not going to be too keen on doing. The second option, they can pass that cost on to their consumers, right? They can raise prices. And that second way is only going to work if there's a situation where you sort of have your consumers held hostage, they don't have choices, and they are willing to pay. The demand is strong enough there that they're willing to eat that higher cost. Finally, the third option is to try to, in a way, circumvent that additional cost being imposed on them of polluting by not polluting. But that itself raises costs of production. You basically have to go find different ways of producing that reduce the pollution that you are producing through your regular production process. The problem with all of this is that changing your production processes costs money. All right, so that's what carbon pricing is doing. It's the objective of carbon pricing. Now the question becomes, how does a government practically implement a carbon price? And when we think about carbon prices, these are typically firm level costs. These are costs that at least initially get imposed on the firm. And this is because the idea in this area is that you want to make the polluter pay. Right. Point is, if you want to change behavior, you're more likely to get that change if you're imposing the cost directly on the bad acting person. Yes. And so the two things that we're going to talk about, the two mechanisms we're going to talk about now tend to focus on the polluter, the firm. Okay. So the first one is a carbon tax. Um, it's a relatively simple idea. Government imposes a fee on every measurable amount, say ton of carbon that a firm produces. End of story. That's it. Pretty simple to administer. Easy to administer if you have a reliable way of measuring carbon and and companies can't get around it, like say VW with their emissions mm. scandal. It's simple in theory. I agree with you on that. Excellent point. Simple in theory. 
maybe more so than the second method, which is known as emissions trading schemes, ETS. They're also known as cap and trade schemes, cap and trade systems. This is a system that limits or basically caps, that's where the cap comes from, Mm -hmm. the allowable carbon emissions that a group of companies or a particular industry can emit during a certain period of time. Okay. And then the government is going to issue emissions allowances to meet this predetermined level. So at that point, firms must have an allowance to pollute and they either get that allowance directly from the government or by trading with other firms. Mm -hmm. So let's say I have a very dirty production process. Leases is relatively clean. We're each going to get, let's say, 100 allowances. If I need 150 and Lisa only needs 40 of hers, then I can basically borrow or trade with Lisa to get those extra credits that I need. Right. So you're probably paying me money for my credits. That makes me happy. I couldn't use them. Now I'm able to monetize them. You're happy because you can go on being a bad polluter. But we've kept the overall level of emissions across the industry at that cap that we wanted to achieve. So who's who's doing it and how are they doing it? It's a great question. So according to the Brookings Institute, there are currently 64 carbon pricing initiatives around the world. Some of those are at the country level. Some of those are at a level within a country. Um, so 45 of those initiatives are national. Um, and those initiatives right now cover about 20% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, which is not super. Not great. Um, The largest and most famous of these carbon pricing initiatives is in the EU, and it is their emissions trading scheme. So they have opted for this cap and trade system rather than the carbon tax system. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you talked about subnational jurisdictions, an example of those would be U.S. states. Absolutely. So I know we don't, at least I don't think we have anything at the the federal federal level level in the U.S. Do any states have some of these policies in place? Yes, and you might not be surprised to hear the names of the states that I'm going to mention. I'm going to think West Coast. You'd be thinking right. Okay. Um, So California also has a cap and trade system, which it launched about 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, The state of Washington voted to enact its carbon pricing system just recently, April of 2021. And you hit the West Coast, but there are actually 11 states in the Northeastern U.S. Hmm. that participate in something called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, which, again, is a cap and trade system that right now covers just under 20 percent of emissions in participating states. That seems like progress amongst U.S. states. But why don't we have a federal system in place? So it's super interesting. And one of the things the practitioner was talking about is there's all these different ways that you can get companies to do things that you want them to do. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And, And not just companies. Any, any any human being any rational agent or irrational for talking about children <laughs> okay. okay sure fair or, enough or professors yes um, you can use carrots or you can use sticks okay and so you might think of these carbon taxes as a stick absolutely you can also use carrots I like carrots I don't literally I like figurative carrots. even like roasted carrots not my favorite no really yeah not a rabbit never been my favorite so the U S has what about carrot juice please stop okay. Uh, So the U.S. has gone more down the carrot route. Which is your favorite. Which is my favorite. And the U.S. really needs to do something because we account for 14% of global greenhouse gas emissions. We are second only to China. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're one country out of hundreds and we are 14% of the the planet's greenhouse. Yeah, that's not good. I believe you would call that disproportionate. Yes. Um, So we have taken the approach of using incentives instead of carbon pricing. Okay. The most recent and probably biggest example of that is the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act, which introduced lots of incentives targeted, again, at both firms and consumers, in this case, to try to combat greenhouse gas emissions. 
Okay, so that kind of begs the question. We've got these two wildly different approaches. We could use carrots or we could use sticks. Even within the sticks, there's a couple of different kinds of sticks we can use. So what's most effective? Like what should we be doing? Um, let's go to the data. Love it. I love it. Love it, darling. All right, so now we're going to talk about some of the research that we saw at the conference. We're going to discuss two papers. The first paper was presented by Martin Jakob at WHU. Um, this paper was, again, talking about that quote unquote polluter pays principle, which we highlighted earlier um, in the episode. Mm hmm. Um, which basically says that you can you want to make the polluter the company pay and you can either do it through emissions trade systems or carbon taxes. This paper is super cool because they're going to use data from space. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Oh, bollocks. <laughs> I could go on, but I will spare you. So this might have been the most awesome Talking about cross-discipline collaboration, this is like two tax researchers and then aerospace, aerospace. engineers. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. quite quite impressive. So the setting is um, a tax in Spain. So Valencia, Spain, introduced a local emissions tax. Uh, the tax was first announced in September of 2012, finalized in December of 2012. And if you are an academic researcher, this is sort of your dream because mm. there's not a lot of time for companies to anticipate that this change yes. is coming and alter their behavior. So the tax became effective January of 2013, and it basically imposed a tax on nitrogen oxide. Yeah. So what's interesting about this paper is we're not actually talking about carbon in this case. We're talking about nitrogen oxide, one of the other pollutants. Um, but in Spain, in this particular province, they imposed a rate on emissions of nitrogen oxide um, that amounted to about five to 13 percent of the corporate tax bill for firms on average in the area, which is not nothing. So not it's, it's a, a significant tax increase. So bottom line is that this is costly for firms. It is. All right, so what the researchers did was they basically matched areas in Valencia with other regions in Spain that were very comparable in terms of the number of inhabitants and production activities. So they basically mm -hmm. wanted to get a treatment and a very well closely matched control group. Once they had that, they worked with these aerospace engineers to measure the concentration of nitrogen oxide in the air around these areas. Using satellite imagery, and we are not aerospace engineers, no. so we don't fully appreciate or understand the technology here, but apparently you can see it from satellite um, and nitrogen oxide only stays in the air about six to eight hours after it's released. And they had very granular measurements. It was like more than daily and within yes. 11 to 13 yes. kilometer square. And so pretty granular, timely data to measure what's going on with emissions. This benefited the researchers because it's not like that pollution was coming from another area. Exactly. Exactly. They basically found that pollution was cut by about 1.2% after the emission tax was introduced. And let me back up again and say that one thing Martin was really clear about is that we can't actually measure the emissions themselves. Mm -hmm. So what this technology, the space technology was doing was measuring the pollution. Yes. And so if we see a reduction in pollution in areas where there are emissions tax 
taxes, but mm-hmm. not in areas, similar areas where they are, there are not these taxes. That gives us evidence that the mm-hmm. emission taxes are leading to a reduction in emissions, which yes. in turn leads to a reduction in pollution. So that's the good news is that there was this reduction. The flip side of that is that we saw a greater reduction in areas where more multinational companies were operating in. And what does that tell us? Well, if you're a multinational company, you have operations in a lot of different locations. And so when one location they impose a tax on you, you can just shift that activity potentially to another one of your locations. That's called leakage. And this is the problem with unilateral taxes. You impose a tax just by one government in one location and companies that have the ability to shift those operations elsewhere can do that and not pay the tax. Pete Lasowski from Boston University discussed this paper and he said, yes, it is absolutely possible that seeing more uh, reductions in areas where there are multinationals could mean that there's leakage. It could also just mean that multinationals are those that are better able to innovate and reduce those emissions. And so we've maybe got two competing explanations for that finding. Yep. The next paper that we talk about is going to help us maybe provide some evidence on which explanation is at play here. Yep. So that second paper that we saw in this area was presented by Diego Kenson of Northwestern. And we're going back to carbon taxes here, specifically taxes on carbon. We're going back to the EU, which um, had a bunch of countries basically colluding together to impose this tax to hopefully prevent leakage, at least within the EU. If we want to look at whether there's leakage, we have to look somewhere outside the EU. Absolutely. So they looked at Africa and there were two big findings from this uh, study. First was that pollution around in areas around subsidiaries of European multinationals in Africa increased by about 2% after the imposition of these carbon taxes in the EU. Okay. So it's it looks like there's some leakage going on. Yes. Right? We're seeing an increase in emissions in Africa. Additionally, they find a reallocation of investment within that multinational group. So while that multinational reduces investment in their home country, they actually increase investment in Africa. And overall, their level of investment is the same, but they're shifting it to Africa, shifting it to that place where pollution remains lower cost. And they measured investment using fixed assets, things that you could think of would be used in a production process. And I think they were focused primarily on companies that were like manufacturers, I believe so. right? Yes. Okay. So we're building a case here for um, the story that we were just trying to tell. You're a Europe, uh, multinational based in Europe. You're shifting your fixed assets and presumably you're manufacturing to Africa in order to avoid these taxes. But they also found that African countries had increased emissions. And that is basically, I think, one of the biggest takeaways from this paper. It's mm-hmm. providing evidence of carbon leakage from developed countries mm. to developing countries, which is... No bueno. No bueno. So two two very cool papers. To sum it up, we are finding evidence, some evidence in Spain that these emission taxes do work. The cost of complying and the tax cost of these emission uh, taxes were very high. Extremely high, especially compared to the fairly modest reduction in emissions. You're not getting a lot of bang for your buck. So yes, these taxes seem to work, but maybe they're a little bit costly. Mm. And we've got these clever multinationals finding ways to avoid them. I wonder if there's anything we could do about that. Time for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm going to start off with the good. Awesome conference, awesome papers, awesome weather. 
And I'm loving slash hating slash loving my co-host's new accent. Thank you very much because I was afraid you were going to ignore it and it was going to make me feel quite bad. It's, it's improving. It, I think it's better now than it was at the beginning of the episode. Well, I can go high class. Yeah. But I can also do this. Nope. Um, now my ears hurt. I also think that it is a good thing that we have evidence of at least some governments, some, some, um, taking these environmental issues seriously and using multiple tools in their arsenal to address the problem. One of the things that was pointed out at the conference is this is a really new area. The practitioner from EY said the same thing, right? Like she said that the governments have really only gotten serious about mm-hmm. using tax policy to address environmental issues really in the last four years, I think yeah, she said. Yeah, it's pretty recent. So from a research researchers perspective, I think that this is a good thing because there's a lot that we don't know yet. She also made a comment I thought that was interesting is that governments are more willing to listen to researchers when we say things proactively, when we try to help them design a policy. That has not been my experience. They have to read it. (laughs) Okay. But her theory was that um, governments are much more moved by papers that talk about how policy should be designed rather than critiquing a policy ex post. So point being, I think as this area continues to grow and emerge and take shape, there are mm-hmm. some pretty good opportunities for researchers to contribute. Okay. We're getting some initial research on the, the sticks. We have hope that we could get some a research, hopefully around maybe the Inflation Reduction Act, mm-hmm. which provided a lot of incentives, yep. the carrots. All right. And uh, good that governments have these multiple ways of tackling this problem and, and, and an optimistic outlook that we'll have research on which of these tools might be best in the future. Well said. Bad companies are finding ways around it. You can just shift to other places. Yeah. Going all the way back to the top of the episode, we talked about anytime you're trying to impose a cost on a for-profit business, that for-profit business is going to try to avoid that cost. Yep. So what's interesting here is the the most, most recent, like the most state of the art mm-hmm. approach to these carbon taxes is called a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Yes. C-BAM. C-BAM. Makes me think of Emerald Lagos. Bam. I like it. There's a 20 year old reference for you. 30? 20? 20. We'll go with 20. Okay. The whole idea behind C-BAM is to get at this leakage. Mm-hmm. It's basically saying if you're bringing in products to our area where we have imposed these taxes, but we can only impose them on production within our area. Mm-hmm. You're bringing in products from outside the area. We're going to tax you on the pollution associated with those products, whether you're buying them, whether you're manufacturing them you, them yourselves. Once it gets to the border, we're going to assess a tax on the emissions associated with those products. If I can interject another good here, I think it is that this idea has come up relatively quickly. True. It didn't take European countries decades to figure out how to address this. They've come up with a potential solution pretty quickly, which is impressive. So is it fair to say that an ugly part of this, you talked uh, at one point about, you know, when you do things unilaterally, it's usually not as effective as when countries collude. When Mm -hmm. is it ugly that the U.S. is just kind of off on their own path? I use the word collude, but I think on a prior episode, we agreed coordination Coordination is a yes. nicer Thank word. You. Thank you. Coordination, harmonization. Mm-hmm. These are words. Ooh, harmonization. These are nicer words yes. that are used by, you know, people who actually want these policies passed. Yes. Yes. Sorry. What was the question? Um, so the question. I'm sorry. No, in a British accent, please. So the question I have for um, Dr. Simone is um, how problematic is it that the United States is not uh, participating in these harmonization activities? I think it's very problematic. Uh, one of the global tax agreements, not the global minimum tax, but the other one that would tax based on where your customers are. Mm, that, market that, sourcing. that plan seems to be falling apart as we speak. 
Um, and that's because the U.S. is not playing ball. So we do have a disproportionate outsized effect on global policies. And so if we're going this lone wolf route of mm -hmm. doing everything differently, doing things our own way, it makes it much harder to get that coordination and harmonization that we were talking about that in many cases is fairly important when leakage is so easy for companies to do. The thing that the practitioner from EY said that really stuck out to me is that it tends to be company-led economies that prefer incentives to drive change. Mm -hmm. And we, the United States, are using incentive to drive change. Yes. So, you know, by a, a little deductive reasoning there, that must mean that the U.S. is a company-led economy, a for-profit-led economy, and maybe we're letting those private interests outweigh societal interests and our concern about the environment. And I'll, the last thing I'll say on this is that the, the negative externality case where you have something that's impacting society, impacting others in a negative way, mm -hmm. and it's not currently being priced, yep. classic example of why governmental regulation, when governmental regulation yes. is required, it is, a, it is a market failure, and that's when you need the government to intervene. And we are currently intervening with incentives, so we're doing something Question is, and I don't know the answer, question is, is it enough? Blimey. Okay, final ugly hair. We have to leave tomorrow. Bloody hell. Well done. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses. 